This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Love it when we get repeat guests back uh, onto the pod. So, uh, very excited for this one. Absolutely. So, we continue our expert investor series today. And as you said, Ren, it's with a guest who has been a great supporter of the podcast almost since day dot. And uh, we have also been a big fan of the work that they're doing. So without further ado, we're joined by co-founder and head of strategy and marketing at BetaShares, Elan. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me on again. So, Elon, we thought we'd get you you back on today because a lot has been happening in the ETF space over the last 12 months, particularly at BetaShares. A lot of new funds have come to market, uh, a lot of ones that are particularly of interest to uh, Ren and I and, and the Equitymates community. So, very much looking forward to discussing some of those and I guess a bit more about the ETF market in in general. So, let's get stuck in. Ren, you want to kick it off? So, Ilan, I reckon the most common question we get on on the podcast from listeners is about ETFs. So, we've tried to crowdsource a lot of questions and obviously, you've had a very busy year. So, we want to hear about that and about some of the things that you're putting out. But to start with, for listeners that haven't listened to our last episode with you, although they definitely should, episode 50 of the podcast in your streams. Make sure you download and listen to it after this. Do you want to start off with just who you are and uh, how you got to beta shares and what the journey's been to date? Yeah, look, thanks again. And I'm so glad that ETFs are resonating with your community. And uh, I'm not surprised, actually, because it is a really great way to, to invest. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that with you, I'm sure, today. But uh, so once again, thanks for that. And look, my journey is as a migrant. So I, like many Australians, was a migrant. I moved here at the beginning of high school and grew up in South Africa and actually did a couple of moves between South Africa and London and back to South Africa before eventually settling down in Sydney. And from a young age, I was, I was always involved in entrepreneurial pursuits. I think I said in my last catch-up with you guys that we did things like created a mini golf course in our backyards as, you know, as seven or eight-year-olds and charge neighborhood kids to come and play with us on, in, in the backyard and all, all sorts of interesting pursuits like that. And I think that entrepreneurial flair and passion almost definitely came from my background as an immigrant. You know, you as an immigrant are well aware what your parents are giving up, particularly when it's a little bit later in life. You know, you're well aware of what your parents are giving up to move from, in my case, South Africa to Australia, really to provide a better future. And it kind of gives you a passion to build something and to, 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 to make them proud, I suppose, and to give something back. And it also gives you a certain level of rebelliousness or questioning that you, I think you need to be an entrepreneur. 
So my journey was I went to university here in Sydney. I spent some time in management consulting at a great place called the Boston Consulting Group, which is one of the world's uh, leading uh, strategy consulting firms. And those firms are basically firms that consult to large companies at the CEO level. And it's quite an, it's a really good training ground. And I've always viewed that period of my life, sort of five and a half years, as an extension of my education. The thing, great thing about being a consultant and the bad thing about being a consultant is that you spend a whole lot of time on the strategy and you don't actually do the work after that. So that some people enjoy that, where other people sort of find that frustrating. At the end, I ended up finding it too frustrating, and so that is one of the reasons why I left, and I had that entrepreneurial itch anyway. So I decided to go out and start a business a bit more seriously than the backyard mini golf course, and I went right into the deep end. I really tried to challenge myself. I basically moved to China, in Beijing in China, without little without any knowledge of Mandarin, and set up a business there in what I thought was a really interesting space, which was uh, advertising, out of home, or digital billboard advertising. It was quite fun. I raised a decent amount of capital and ended up with, yeah, around about 50 Chinese-speaking staff in the end. And uh, the business grew quite nicely, but we were hit fairly hard by the global financial crisis, which ended up stymieing the growth of the business over the years. And so... In the end, I decided to come back home and let the business just sort of ride its own way. Um, and really, that experience was awesome in the sense that I really enjoyed greatly being in China and building something. But it was quite a lonely experience doing it by yourself and perhaps particularly lonely given the time I was spending in, in a very foreign place. So when I decided to come back, I knew I wanted to continue doing something entrepreneurial, but I wanted to also make sure I connected with partners. And so I did that. I connected with some friends of mine from university and really set up, uh, worked on setting up businesses and worked in an uh, investment company as well, which we, which we continue to run, which is called Apex Capital. So Apex Capital is a company that, that basically partners with early stage companies, primarily in financial services space, to grow into larger companies by providing financial capital and intellectual capital, as well as you know, know-how and networks to build out. So ultimately like a venture capital firm focused on, on financial services. But one of the big things that we do, which might be a little bit different to other more traditional venture capital style organizations is that we build companies ourselves. And one of the ones that we've done most recently is, is BetaShares. And BetaShares is a company, of course, that is involved heavily in the exchange traded fund or ETF industry. So we spent some time thinking about what business we should be launching. We spent quite a long time, maybe over a year, year and a half, looking at the market. And we kept on seeing this ETF thing pop up. And after a few things had changed in the market, we decided to launch an ETF business, which is called BetaShares. And to be honest, the global financial crisis was possibly one of the best things for an industry like ETFs. And that's because of people getting frustrated with the high fees that people are charging for what has ultimately been relatively poor performance in an environment when the market dropped. So people were thinking, I've put my money with an active fund manager, for example, or I've tried to invest myself. And in either case, under the global financial crisis, it went bad. So rather start focusing on low-cost, efficient tools like ETFs, which we'll get into in a second. And, uh, and that was a great, great part of the growth of the BetaShares story. So now that's about eight and a half years ago now that we, we started BetaShares. And interestingly enough, we've now got about eight and a half billion dollars of assets. So it's literally something like every year we, we've been obviously raising a billion on average. Um, that's, been, that's been speeding up recently. But we've got 55 funds now uh, with about eight and a half billion dollars in assets in what are known as exchange traded funds. So that's a bit of a background. Yeah, awesome story. I think, um, as we said at the start, Ren and I uh, spoke to you maybe 18 months ago or so, and and just the growth that we've seen in the last 12 months has been staggering. Even the amount of funds that you guys are releasing is, is pretty phenomenal. So I'm, I'm pretty interested in the process that you go through to to get to these new funds to market. But before we get into that, I mean, we've spoken about ETFs a lot on the show, so I would imagine most people know what they are. What are some of the reasons you think they are of interest to new investors? Why, why um, do people come to ETFs as a, an entry to the market? So for those of you that know ETFs, you'll know that they're bought and sold like a share, and they are essentially 
ultimately a often a low-cost index tracking fund that is bought and sold like a share. And so the benefits of that structure are the reasons why people are increasingly using them. And the benefit of the, of the structure is, in no real particular order, one, access. So you don't have to fill in any forms to buy them. You can buy and sell them like any share. Also, because they're bought and sold like a share, there's no minimum investment. There's no minimum investment required. You can invest as little as $500 or up to millions of dollars if you want. Um, also, because it's, it's traded like a share, you can buy and sell it at any time. So if you want to sell out, you can do so, and you'll get your money in, in two days, which is the settlement period for selling shares, as you know, and buying shares. Arguably, most importantly, very, very cost-effective. So because most of the funds that are ETFs in the market are passively managed, they typically means that you do not have to, as an ETF manufacturer, pay a high-priced stock picker. And in fact, indeed, you can just track an index, which will mean it's a lower cost to manage, which is passed on to end investors. And finally, it's also very transparent. So ETFs will typically show their entire holdings on any given day to investors. You can just go to the website and you can see exactly what is in the ETF. So these are the reasons. Um, and in terms of people getting started, apart from things I've just mentioned, probably the most important of all is the diversification benefits you get from them. So if you've made a choice to invest and you've made a choice to invest, say, in Australian shares, prior to the advent of ETFs, you have to think about, well, okay, should I buy the Woolworth stock or should I buy Commonwealth Bank stock or should I buy QBE or should I buy CSL or should I buy two or three of those? With ETFs, you can, for example, buy the entire ASX 200 in a single trade, which means that you obviously have far more diversification in your portfolio, but it still is only one trade. So that's another reason why for somebody getting started, you pull all those things together, it makes for a pretty obvious starting point and actually ending point for many people's portfolios as well. So Ilan, we've touched on it already, but BetaShares has been very actively producing new ETFs in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. We've seen a number of uh, new and interesting funds come onto the ASX. So can you, can you tell us a bit about uh, the process to, uh, to, you know, to, to bring a new fund to market and maybe if there's one or two that you're particularly excited about or that you think are particularly new and novel, um, what are the ones that you're really, um, really excited about releasing? You know, at Beta Shares, since the launch of the business, our mantra has been to generate intelligent investment solutions for Australian investors. So what we're looking to do is give people access to investment tools that help help create better portfolios. So when we think about which products to launch, we're often thinking about what's something that's hard for people to get access to? What's something that isn't available in the market at the moment? What is something that will actually help the portfolios of Australian investors? Because for example, if you take international shares, there isn't, in, there isn't those particular exposures here available here in the Australian marketplace. Or what are some things that people need to diversify their portfolios beyond shares? So I was thinking about a whole lot of bond ETFs that we've launched, for example. So the process is around, first of all, just making sure that, that, that the products that we launch have a really strong place in people's portfolios. We, when we're thinking about products, we always think about does what we're doing have a longevity to it? So for example, fads are all well and good and they come and go. But when we, for example, thinking about developing a product in a particular sector, our question is always, is this a real secular change in the environment that's going to make this sector one with longevity from an investment perspective rather than a flash in the pan? And the other thing we think about is being true to label. So you want to make sure that when you put out a product that has a name, that that name is not just a name in and of itself. It has to actually be true to label. So, you know, I'll give you an example. If we were out trying to build a self-driving car ETF, so what we'd have to do then is have to buy a whole lot of companies that are involved in self-driving cars. But as you know, I mean, apart from, you know, sort of very, very few companies out there, there's not many whose entire business is around self-driving cars and very few that are listed on the stock markets of around the world. So the problem is you'd end up creating a fund 
that would buy, you know, Tesla and Google and others, you know, Uber, companies that are arguably involved in self-driving, but you'd also be getting all this other baggage that comes with Uber or Google or, or, or Tesla that is not about self-driving, and it just means that you don't have a true-to-label product. So, and then the final thing, of course, is just making sure that there's actually demand. So we can come up with a whole lot of ideas around demand, but is there actually going to be enough demand to justify setting up a product? And we get ideas all the time, like I'm sure you do, from, from, from interested parties around new product ideas. And those are some of the things we always look at to determine whether to do it. And, and then finally, can we actually make an ETF out of something? So, yeah, it would be great to do an Australian residential property ETF. I mean, it's a great thing. Maybe you do one short and one long. But you actually can't create something that can be put inside an ETF. There's no exposure you can buy that actually allows you to build an ETF. You can't buy houses. It's obviously not going to work like that. You have to buy something that's liquid. And so that's an example of the sort of things we look at. So that answers the question of how do we come up with a product. And then in terms of some of the interesting products we've launched, you're right, we have been pretty active well, really, to be honest, since the launch of our business. So we've got 55 funds, which is actually more than anybody else on the ASX. But we think that the products that we have been brought, bringing out recently are just as, re just as relevant as the ones we brought out on the first day of our business. So maybe just talking about a few, if you like. One that we had a lot of demand from all sorts of investors, including, I'm sure, many of the people that listen to your show, was India. Mm. So again, like India is such an interesting, a fascinating economy, but one that is so hard to get exposure to. So just thinking back to the things I was saying before, great theme, uh, longevity, hard to get exposure to, definitely adds value to investors' portfolios, right? So it's one of the, probably the most exciting and fastest growing economies in the world. And this product invests, which is IIND, the India Quality ETF, ASX code is IIND, invests in high-quality Indian companies. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to look past the returns of the index to, to know that, that, that India, the India's share market has been pretty amazing. So the index that we track in that fund has done around 11% a year since the inception of that index, whereas Australia in that same period had done about seven and the rest of the world had done about nine. So it's growing very, very fast. And I could talk at length about, you know, the case for India, uh, but the main thing I would say is just obviously how, obviously the, the secular growth trend behind India is, is just, just phenomenal, you know, tremendous growth. I think it's 7.5% GDP growth over the last decade in a world where global growth was 3.5%. And forecasted growth around about the same where, you know, for example, another fast growing country like China has around about a 6% a year growth forecast. So incredibly interesting growth projections, primarily because the population is so young. The average uh, Indian is sort of median age is 28, unbelievably low. Uh, the average age of the population around the world is 42. So young population doesn't have the issues that Japan has around an aging population. It's got a very young population a stable government under, you know, under Modi now, great share market performance, urbanization, and you know, we, we're hearing a lot about the, the trade wars at the moment with Trump, you know, China and the US. India is the one market that is completely, un, in many ways, completely unaffected by that. And so their export, their share of exports around the world has actually been going up. So there's obviously a very clear growth case and investment case behind India, but how do you access it? And this is where the India ETF comes in. Uh, because it's very, very hard to trade yourself. And it basically also gives you a really interesting source of you know, portfolio diversification. The India ETF has been a topic of a lot of questions from listeners. And I think you answered some of their questions just there when you talk about the opportunity that is India. I guess some of the other questions that we've been getting, and I'd be interested to get your two cents on it. India has obviously had a big population and for a long time since its inception and a lot of the macro factors have sort of looked like they've been there for a while. Why is now the right time for India as an investment opportunity? Well, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, this, the index that we've, that we've been tracking, which I think is about, you know, has a, has a history of around 10 years or so, would have given you 11% a year every year for the last 10, 10 years or so. So I think it would have been a good time to invest then too. I just think up until now, it's been very, very hard to invest. So I think the opportunity for India has been there. 
I mean, now what, what are we seeing, I suppose, that's different and what makes now the time? I think that's a really interesting question. So I think in general, India is a very interesting area of investing you know, across the board. I think the one thing that has actually changed is obviously Modi's re-election. It does mean that you know, the political situation looks a lot clearer over there and a lot uh, more stable than it ever has before. So also it's quite reformed. I mean, Modi, not to get into too much detail, but he's quite a reformist. So he is going to be pushing digitization and urbanization and things that just generate opportunity for domestic Indian companies. I think the Trump trade wars is another interesting, interesting point around now. So, you know, again, like to have uh, in this current environment where people are literally buying and selling billions of dollars of shares on the back of a tweet from President Trump, the fact that you've got sort of a country that is entirely, largely uninvolved in that is nice because that would mean that it should be, you know, it should generally be focused on the domestic environment there and also its continuing ability to export. So I think those are some of the reasons. It's just more of the same in terms of India. And it's time for them. It's their moment in the sun. I mean, China's had an incredible run. And I think India's now certainly years behind where China is, but that provides the opportunity for India. So the GDP per capita, all these metrics are so much lower, but that's the opportunity for, for, you know, for the country. So that's what I would say. Yeah, fascinating. So I guess to echo that question then and moving to another fund that um, is relatively new beta shares and that's the UK FTSE 100 ETF, ASX F100 if anyone wants to check it out, perhaps at a time where it is maybe not so attractive to be investing in the UK because of what's going on with Brexit at the moment, sort of mm. where do you see that fund is, is now the, the right time to be looking at something like that? And I mean, for, for an investor of you know, um, in Australia, it certainly provides opportunity to get access to the European markets. But um, what, are you, what are your thoughts around that? Well, it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of misconception about the FTSE 100. It's a very, very well-known index like the NASDAQ 100 or the S&P 500. You'd say that those are the very large, well-known headline-based indices around the world. But interestingly, with the FTSE 100, you're actually buying blue chip companies that are global, right? So, what people don't understand is that 70% of the earnings in the FTSE 100 are outside of the UK. So this interesting topic about Brexit, actually, 70% of the earnings of those companies are arguably unaffected by Brexit. So what we've actually been seeing in practice, and by the way, these are companies like, for example, HSBC, which many people don't know is actually an English company, even though it's got a very strong Asian presence. Unilever, obviously just a tremendous sort of brand building company, sort of some of the largest brands in the world are owned by, 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 you know, by Unilever. I mean, you know, really, really large number. So nutrition, hygiene, personal care, you know, you'd all know the brands, but it's Jif and Dove and Lipton and, and Lux and Pons, Rexona, Omo, the real sort of supermarket stuff. Again, you can hardly argue that that is a UK company. That is absolutely a global company. Diageo, which would all be most likely have used some of their products being the largest alcohol you know, business in the world, um, is, is a UK business available on the, you know, on the FTSE 100. And again, just brands that we would all know, many of us may, may love if we're that way inclined, Johnny Walker, Casual One in the, you know, in, the, in the space of vodka, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've actually seen, given those companies, is that when there's been sort of concerns over Brexit, the pound has, done, has gone down in value, yeah? But the pound has gone down in value, but that means that the FTSE does okay because of all the offshore earnings, because it obviously becomes cheaper for them to be exported. So we think that actually FTSE, is a, FTSE 100 is a broader play than just thinking about the UK. It gives you access to companies that you can't otherwise access in Australia. And it's also a pretty good diversifier for those people who invest in US tech companies, either via the NASDAQ or other other you know, other forms, because these companies, as you, as you would have heard some of them, they're a bit more old school, a bit more stable. They don't have that same profile. So they're another set of blue chips that's actually very, very different to the blue chips out of the US, you know, the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles of this world. So, so there's that. And then, of course, 
if you believe that the Brexit situation will be resolved at some point, then at some point there's going to be a real buying opportunity there because in general, you know, the UK market and the pound will rally. And this is unhedged, so you are getting exposure to the pound here. So if you believe the pound has been oversold because of Brexit, or if you believe that at some point things look like they'll be, you know, resolved, then there's going to be a clear buying opportunity. So that's, that's sort of what we're seeing out of that fund. Yeah, it's interesting. With the, the UK FTSE 100 ETF, do they, I mean, Europe generally or UK generally, is there such a sort of fascination and dependence on dividends as, as there is in Australia? Yeah, well, it's a great point, and I should have raised that point. I'm glad you brought it up. So people don't realize that the dividends in FTSE 100 are actually really high. So it's actually one of the highest dividend-paying nations in the world, apart from Australia. So I think last time we checked, or last time I checked, the dividend rates at the moment, for example, in the FTSE 100, was actually higher than the ASX market. So I think it was about 4.8%. This was in June I, I had the number. So it was 4.8% dividend yield in the FTSE 100 index and around 4.5% for the Australia 200 index. So that's another point. People are buying the UK market for just explicitly for the dividend as well. And let's be honest, right now where you can hardly get great interest rates out of things like cash and other investments and getting income is potentially fairly interesting as well. So Ilan, we're we're really on a world tour at the moment. So I wanna I wanna keep that trend going, and I wanna talk about another international uh, international facing fund. You could say one that uh, you know we asked you earlier what fund you were most excited about. I reckon this one might be the one or one of the ones that I'm quite excited about. The Asian Technology Tigers ETF, um, ASX Code Asia. Uh, you guys got lucky to get that ASX ticker. I imagine that, that would have been a hot yeah. property. Uh, it was good, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us what an Asian technology tiger is to start with? Yeah, sure. So it's quite simple. The Asia technology companies, the Asia technology tigers are the 50 largest technology companies in Asia, excluding Japan. So when I say some of the names, you very likely would have heard of some of them at least. So Alibaba, which is obviously just a tremendous wholesale and retail sort of business. Tencent, which owns so many things that drive billions of people every single day in the, in, in, in the Asian markets, including things like QQ.com, which is a sort of a WhatsApp equivalent. Um, they're a large owner in Fortnite, so the game Fortnite, which is the largest game in the world, so an incredible company. Baidu, which is the Google of, of, of China, and JD.com, which is essentially the Amazon of China. So these are companies that are literally changing lives of, of quite literally billions of people around the world. And those, were, those are what we call the, the, the Australian technology tigers. It's interesting because, you know, they're all listed on, on different markets. I think Alibaba is in New York, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why exclude Japan? The reason why typically people exclude Japan, and it's not just us, it's quite a common thing in the investment industry, is Japan's growth profile is obviously so, so different. And for those of you that have been there, uh, landing in Tokyo and seeing how developed it is and in many ways how mature it is versus landing in, say, Shanghai and just a tremendous buzz and growth. I mean, they're both unbelievably buzzy places to go visit, but the growth in Shanghai is literally palpable when you go there whereas Tokyo is ultimately a developed market. So we wanted to give people exposure to the fast-growing markets around the world, and Japan is, is just very different. So this, the markets we invest in are essentially China, Taiwan, South Korea, India, and Thailand are sort of the main, the main markets, with China being almost 50% in terms of the portfolio allocation. Yeah, right. Because beta shares do have a Japan ETF, don't they? Yeah, right. So yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. That's HJPN. So that's another reason we think that we just generally think that if people want to invest in Japan, they've got a very different perspective than um, than this particular product. So this product is really rapidly growing Asian technology companies. So if we uh, if we end our world tour and we bring you back home, Ilan, uh, there may be a there may yes. be a trade war going on, but you guys are involved in a price war over at BetaShares, <laughs> and that that is specifically around the uh, the ASX two hundred, a really good performing market this year, and it seems you guys made a bit of a splash, and some of your uh, ETF competitors have had to cut their prices. So 
Do you want to tell us about the journey that your ASX 200 ETF's been on and where you see that fund, which I imagine for Australian investors between you and your ETF competitors is one of the more popular ones? It is, yeah. There's over $600 million in that fund at the moment. Uh, it's You're right, it's the world's lowest cost Australia 200 ETF. So it's 0.07% a year in fees, which if you translate that into dollar terms is $7 a year for every $10,000 you invest. So incredibly low cost and in fact the lowest in the world. And yes, our competitors have reduced their prices, but this still remains the lowest cost um, ETF for Australian shares in the world. And it's just the largest 200 stocks on the ASX. The journey has been an excellent one. We've had incredibly good feedback on it. It does what it says on the tin. It provides exposure to the ASX 200, the largest 200 companies, names that everybody knows. And we just thought that we are an Australian business. We, when we launched the fund, the cheapest exposure you could get to the Australia 200 was uh, 0.14%, which you know is not a huge figure in the scheme of things. But for something that is so core and in many ways so commoditized, we thought it should be a lot less. So we just said, let's just really shake this thing up and essentially drop the price by half to seven basis points. And I just wanted to make it very, very clear because there's some people who we're aware that people are worried that there's a chance that at some point we, we might raise the prices as some sort of a loss leader. Well, I can assure you the price of this fund will never, ever go higher than seven basis points. It is absolutely not going to be risen at any point. Nothing would make us you know, more upset to do something like that. This is there for people who want to get a quick start to their portfolio. It's a perfect building block. And we know it's being used by many of your listeners in their portfolios as a central building block for Australia. So we've been really happy with it. And we have seen our competitors cut their prices as a result of that. And so from our perspective, that's absolutely awesome. We don't view that as a concern. If all we have done is given a whole lot of other investors a cheaper experience, fantastic. And by the way, we've shrunk the revenue pools of our, of our competitors in doing so. <laughs> so we think, we, think, we, think it's a, we think it's a fairly clever strategy. And for this kind, of, this kind of exposure where we're absolutely well and truly well placed to do so, we are Australians, we can get that economies of scale now with the amount of cash we have or amount of funds under management. We think that that was a, an excellent product for people to get started. So we've been really happy with the results and uh, with the way in which the environment and the market has taken up this fund in terms of investment dollars. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we've really given some good light to the recent activities of beta shares and some of the new shares, sorry, ETFs to market. So if anyone's interested, we'll include all of the ones that we've spoken about in our show notes. But we've got a few questions from listeners around the the fees and costs of ETFs, Elon, that we'd like to sort of address. The first one being around, I guess, the move towards a an American style uh, zero sort of dollar ETF. Do you think that's ever going to be possible in Australia? Is there enough competition for that to happen or is is it a size thing? How do you sort of see that playing out over the next few years? So I would never say never, but you're right that the market is, you know, we're at $53 billion now, the assets under management of ETFs. Uh, I think the US is now over four, four, and that's Aussie dollars, and the US is four trillion US dollars, right? So it is a much, much larger market. But what I do want to say is there's no such thing as zero, unfortunately. So the zero fee ETFs, there's going to be money made elsewhere in some shape or form. Some of them have to do what's known as securities lending, which is essentially once you've actually invested in all the stocks, you make money by lending out those stocks which introduce you know, certain, you know, certain risks. So I think in the end, we, we really wouldn't be, I think it's, 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 it's always good to be focused on fees, but you also have to know how people are doing what they're doing. And so 
it's just something to be a bit cautious of and just make sure that everyone understands how these things are being uh, given zero and just making sure that things are actually zero because what you sometimes see is a really tricky thing where it will say zero, for example, management fee where in fact there's all these expense recoveries meaning that from an investor's perspective it's just not zero. So do I think it will happen? Probably not in the short term. Could it happen? Absolutely yes. Uh, and in the end, you know, that is about maturation of the market. But we're certainly seeing the prices only go one direction. But again, the only thing I'd say for your listeners is there's a time and a place for ultra-low fees. And absolutely, fees are really important to be focused on. But sometimes I think people get a little bit carried away by fees, just a little bit. So we're obviously brought out the lowest cost Australian shares ETF because that is a market where we think that as an investor, that's the core of your portfolio and it should, it should be that place and you should absolutely focus on the cheapest thing you can because there's multiple opportunities, other ways to get such an exposure. And so you may as well get the cheapest because it's basically just the same product with a different price. But if one, were, for example, was so focused on fees, like to the point of being... I won't even look at something, and I see this sometimes on, on you know, forums like Reddit, and et cetera, sort of so focused on fees that I won't even look at you know, what else is out there. Just think about the NASDAQ 100. That would literally have been the best investment anyone could have made over the last 10 years, like almost bar none in the equity markets, right? Because essentially, you've been betting on the growth of Facebook and Google and Amazon, which has been going relatively well, I would say. So if you were looking at this 10 years ago and you were looking at only fees, you would have discounted, for example, the NASDAQ 100. Instead of 0.07% a year, that chart is 0.48%, which is still only $48 a year for the, every $10,000 you invest. It's not exactly big numbers. You would have missed, since we launched that particular ETF, that's called NDQ, that's had a 20% plus return every year. So the extra you know, 41 basis points or 0.41% that you've, you know, you, you've gained has been more than made up by the incredible returns you would have seen. So it's horses for courses. I think people, the focus on fees amongst some members of the investment community has actually gone too far when it comes to an investment in something that is a value adding style of investment. So that's sort of a rant on fees from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a, it's definitely a hot topic, uh, throughout the industry and throughout uh, investors. So if there's anything to rant about, it may be that. I, I guess I guess <laughs> on the, that theme as well, we've had a question about fees and how they're constructed more generally. And I guess, yeah. I guess the intention of the question is where there's two similar products, would there be a reason to pay higher fees if, you know, there's more things that go into a product? So can you maybe just take a step back for us and just explain how the cost of an ETF is actually built? Right. Well, first of all, when we're thinking about pricing an ETF or generating a cost for an ETF, the first thing we do is we look at how much work is actually involved in managing the product. So buying the largest 200 stocks in Australia couldn't be easier. We do that all day long with very, very little overhead. Doing things like India and all the effort associated with you have to appoint a local custodian over there, you have to appoint a local tax agent, actually, frankly, costs more. So there's that simple cost of running the fund that's number one. We do look at the competitive environment. I mean, who wouldn't? It's not like, you know, Apple isn't looking at what Netflix is doing and Netflix is not looking at what Amazon is doing. I mean, so everyone looks at the competitive environment. And we also look at the potential market demand. Now, what I mean by that is, you as an investor in an ETF want to make sure that when you invest in an ETF, it's going to be there forever. If the market demand is going to be a lower, smaller one, the price has to be more because in order for the issuer of the ETF to keep the, comp keep the ETF alive, the, the profits on that ETF have to be viable. So if it's a more niche exposure, the price has to be higher to make sure the product will stay alive. So those are the things we looked at, look at. That's basically the decision-making process. Now, to your question about whether or not, if an investment is literally identical, i.e. like the Australia 200 product, or very, very close to being identical, if not identical, so super duper close, i.e. there's not a huge difference investing in one versus the other, then absolutely management costs are probably one of the key things you should look at. 
The only other thing I would add to that, and we speak about it in the ETF industry, is what's known as total cost of ownership. And that is, when you buy an ETF, you're buying something that has a management cost associated with it, which is that fee we've been speaking about. But also there's what's known as a bid and offer spread. So this is the difference between the true value of the ETF and what price you're buying at it on the market. And so bigger ETFs, those that are more supported by more professional ETF organizations, typically have a tighter spread, and that ultimately is a cost to you. So if you buy a fund that has a 0.5% bid and offer spread, that will mean that 0.25 on the way in, 0.25 on the way out, that adds to your total cost. If that was in fact only 0.02, then you're actually saving a lot. So those are some of the things I would look at. But as long as they actually are very, very similar, then fees have to be play a huge range. It's important for people to understand that just because they say they're the same thing doesn't mean they are the same thing. You do have to actually look into what the ETF is. Yeah, and I think the the great thing about ETFs is that a lot of the information around you know what index they're following, what they're holding, all of that is extremely public and extremely transparent. So, you know, the the great thing for us on our equity mates journey here is that it really is all just a Google search away. So. For people who are trying to figure that out, it is, it's, it's more accessible than it's ever been, I think. Yeah, agree. So another, another big theme uh, that we often talk about on the podcast and offered as well is just, just the sort of paradox of choice that we're almost faced with at this point, that, that there are so many ETFs from all the different ETF providers, both domestically and internationally, so I guess a broad question for you, how do you think about the, the amount of ETFs out there and how do we as retail investors navigate all the choices between broad market indexes to thematic ETFs to more niche ETFs to active ETFs? How do we choose the right one, I guess? <laughs> the golden question. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's got to make... <laughs> you know, you and I am going to say something that my lawyer would yeah. want me to say, which is that I can't give personal advice. You know... You're waiting for me to say that, and here we go, I'm going to say it. I can't give personal advice. Cha-ching, ching-ching, very exciting. Now, the but. You have to know as an investor what you're looking at doing. So first and foremost, you have to ask yourself, what am I investing for? Am I investing for income, or am I investing for growth? Do I already have investments, and do I want to diversify what I'm doing? Do I want to get access to a particular theme or exposure? Right. So, broad rule of thumb, if you've got a long time to invest, a long time frame to invest, really you should be slanting your portfolio towards growth rather than income. Everybody likes income, but as an investment thesis, investing for growth is a far better thing to do for those that are just getting started or have a long time frame, which I expect a good number of your investors will have which would mean that you're going to start looking at things that are growth-oriented and not income-oriented. So India is growth-oriented. There's no doubt about it. People are investing in India because they believe that it is going to be a growing investment without necessarily being a high-income investment. So that's the first thing. Understand how you, how you want to invest, and then that will actually reduce the number of, of investments straight away. You know, do I need to invest for growth? That will mean I'm going to, first of all, probably discount tens and tens and tens of fixed income-oriented ETFs. If all I'm looking for is growth, then I need to invest in shares, and I should probably invest in a combination of Australian and international shares, because otherwise I'm pinning my hopes too much on Australia, right? Or I actually need to generate income for whatever reason, for my lifestyle, then you've got to, you know, you will immediately chop off those funds that are not particularly strong income payers, but are focused, sorry, not particularly strong growth, but potentially decent income payers, right? So this is where you move into things like hybrids and you look into things like some of the income tilted ETFs out there that we, that we have and other issuers have as well. So that's the first and foremost thing. You work out what you want to do or you've already got a good portfolio of Australian shares, right? Now I just need to focus my attention on the international market. Now I need to look at NASDAQ 100 as a great core exposure for, you know, for what we do. So I think that's it. And then, you know, then there's people who just want to get exposure to a theme that they really want to get exposure to because they believe in it strongly. Now that could be cybersecurity, 
ETF. It could be robotics, artificial intelligence. It could be uh, India, or it could be ethical investment, right? So I, I actually really only want to invest in companies that are aligned with my values. I want to put my dollars to work to profit from my principles, and therefore you'll have a much smaller number of funds to look at. So those are some of the things. But in general, I think what is fair to say is that everyone who's building a portfolio should be building a core, first and foremost, and that core is going to be a nice diversified mix of Australian shares, international shares, depending on their age, some bonds, some cash, etc. And then to generate some extra return, maybe some satellites, right? So maybe things that have higher levels of risk, but are for your, you know, for your, you know, for your satellite exposure, and that could be any number of things. Now, the only thing I would say as well for somebody, for the groups of people that I know listen to your to your podcast, which I think would largely be a younger sort of market. One way to really potentially build growth when you have a scenario where you've got very long time frames is actually by using gearing, right? So we've got funds that are internally geared, which means that you don't have to worry about borrowing money, but essentially you've got an internally leveraged or geared ETF that is very diversified, for example, the US market or the, or the Australian market. And if you've got the time frame to invest and you're comfortable with that sort of a risk profile, which pretty much means you need a long time frame, that can really be an interesting way to generate wealth as well. Unless you've gone in the B bus at the moment over the last 10 <laughs> years and then, and then you'd be uh, yeah. going the other way. But no, I, I agree with the gearing side of things. If you know, if you know what you're doing and, and position it right in, in your portfolio, certainly can be very advantageous for people of our, our age or I guess stage in the investing journey. So Elon, sort of back coming off that question then, you know, we get a lot of people write in and say, I'm, I'm choosing between these three ETFs and, and they're all very, very similar at the end of the day. So, so let's, for example, take a global quality leaders, global ethical ETF, and then, you know, the broader S&P 500. A lot of the, those three ETFs have a lot of overlap in terms of some of the companies that are, that are in there. What are your thoughts on how we should best sort of think about this and, and approach the choice that we, or, or approach the task of choosing what would be the best option, I guess? Well, first of all, just make sure there is a lot of overlap. Like, it may not be as much as you think, because if you just look at the top 10, you might see some similar names. But A, the weights could be very, very different. And it just may not be as much as you think. So just make sure that you check that assumption before you say, oh, there's a whole lot of overlap, right? So you're right that a lot of ETFs are going to have exposure to Apple because it's, you know, amongst the largest companies in the world, usually the largest company in the world, give or take, depending on the day, between themselves and, and others. So just having seen the name Apple in there doesn't necessarily mean that the overlap is all that high necessarily. But if there is a lot of overlap, actually, once you've looked at it, you again need to know what sort of exposure you're looking for and you should try to find diversification. So they would not make, if you could look, at, look through the holdings and see they're actually very, very similar. And you can do things like, for example, a shortcut way to do it is look at the sectors for example, that's probably the, one of the better ways to do it necessarily more than looking at the actual company. So if you look at a particular product and you see that the sector exposure, when I mean sector, I mean industry sector, such as you know, IT or resources, healthcare, et cetera. If you look at that and you notice that sector weightings are very similar amongst two products, that would be a scenario where, and assuming they're, for example, both global, that would be a scenario where buying both of them would be doubling up. Now, you can do that if you're doing that consciously, but from a diversification perspective, it wouldn't make sense. So my sense would be in that situation, you just got to pick the one that you actually, you, know, you actually think makes sense. So your suggestion around global ethical and global quality leaders, well, clearly, the reason why somebody wants to buy global ethical is for the reasons I previously described. So they should, if they want to invest in an ethical manner, they should focus on the ethical side of companies. If, for example, they're happy to hold some stocks that some people would feel are less ethical and they don't have that sort of mind frame, then perhaps the, you know, the quality leaders fund would be better. So, so, so that's what I would say. So one, one other key sort of theme of questions that we have and we often hear is around the difference between actively managed ETFs and LICs, listed investment companies. You're probably the best person we can ask. Do you want to just start 
by explaining what the difference is and then uh, how, how we should think about the difference in our investing journeys? Sure. So actively managed ETFs are ETFs that are much the same as all the other ETFs I've just mentioned, except that instead of tracking an index or aiming to track an index, they are actively managed by a professional fund manager for a particular objective. That objective could be income or it could be to provide outperformance against a particular benchmark, etc. cetera. Uh, that's the active ETF. So, but what it means is it's still bought and sold like a share. It's still open-ended, which is something I'm going to get to in a minute. And it still would typically have um, you know, a, re- a reasonable amount of transparency. Even the active ETFs, they do have to disclose their full portfolio uh, every quarter. The, uh, the LIC is a listed investment company, also is bought and sold like a share, but there's a critical difference. There's a critical difference. And they're, often, they're also often actively managed, so in the sense that you know, they have a similar sort of pathway. The critical difference is that they are not open-ended. So for your listeners, why does that matter? So open-ended structures mean that when there is more demand than there is supply of the ETF shares or units, the ETF issuer can essentially just create more. They can just create more there and then. At the end of the day, they'll just create more and there'll be more available onto the market to satisfy any need, whether it be positive or negative need. The LIC has a fixed number of units outstanding or fixed numbers of shares outstanding. What that means is that the price of the LIC, and this is really the key flaw of LICs, the price of the LIC is driven not only by the underlying performance of the manager, but also by demand and supply. So it's a question we get asked a lot. Does an ETF that's really popular and is getting bought a lot, does that mean the price will rise? Well, because it's open-ended, the answer is absolutely not. So no matter how popular something is from an ETF buying perspective, that will not change the price of the ETF. It has no impact because the price of the ETF is defined by the underlying exposures price. The LIC situation is a different one. That is one because it's closed. If a particular, if you buy an LIC in a time when it's in favor and a whole lot of people are buying it, it, the price of that LIC will trade at a premium to the value of the underlying holdings of that LIC. In other words, you're buying it for more than it's worth. Then when it comes time to, time to sell, you do not know where that premium or discount is actually at. For example, you might sell it because you feel like selling it at a time where, for whatever reason, that particular lick is out of favor. So you, now, instead of you've, buying, you've bought it in at a, at a premium to its value, so you've bought it for more than it's worth, you could sell it for less than it's worth. So you kind of have a double whammy. So what it means is that from the perspective of both the investor and, in fact, the manager of the lick, there's a whole part of the performance equation that is out of the control of the manager, and the investor has got absolutely nothing they can do about that other than just know they're buying it at a premium and a discount. So that's, that's it. And to get on a little bit of a hobby horse, the other thing about the LIC at the moment is that to date, they've all been sold by people who are generating income from selling those funds. So they're being sold by ultimately a stockbroking organization or a network who are getting paid by the fund manager to sell that fund. So it just means that there's an external influence on, on the people who are selling those, you know, selling those stocks as well. So that, that, that's the difference. So we genuinely believe that the active ETF is a far more evolved structure, and we do think that over time, the LIC structure will become less popular. And in fact, the, the ETF market, which is you know, around 20 years old in Australia, 18 years old or so, has already overtaken the, the size of the LIC market, which is around about a 90-year-old industry. So, Elon, before we get into our, our um, wrap-up, there's one final question that has been getting a lot of sort of interest on in our community, and that's around the announcement of the, the blockchain innovators. Is there anything further that we can share about that? Or, you know, it's pretty exciting for a lot of our, our listeners. Yeah, so we are absolutely excited by the blockchain, and we certainly are looking at it carefully. The thing I mentioned before in the earlier part of today's podcast was when we're thinking about creating a fund, we want to make sure that it's true to label. 
And as we've delved deeper into the construction of these particular products, we have that situation where you've got this thing where despite your best endeavors, the companies that you're buying, they may well have exposure to blockchain, but they also do a hell of a lot of other things. And so what you end up seeing is a situation where some of the stocks that are in the potential blockchain index are driven by factors that go way beyond blockchain. And that's just something we've been trying to grapple with. The space is so new and is so evolving that we want to make sure we make the right decision and always bring out a product that is true to label. It's one thing that we've actually been struggling with with the blockchain because you would know the types of companies involved and they certainly are not blockchain-only companies like NVIDIA. You know, it's a huge microprocessor business. It clearly is involved in the blockchain, but it does a lot of other things and its price and performance will be driven by things way beyond just the blockchain. But we are looking at it carefully. We will continue to evaluate it and, to, and when we find a solution that we can put our hands on our hearts and feel strongly that it provides a good true-to-label solution, then we'll, we'll look to launch it. No, that makes sense. And I guess we'll, we'll watch this space with anticipation. So there's probably a thousand more questions that we could go through from the community, but um, in the interest of time, I think we will we'll leave it there. Before we go, we, we generally ask three questions of the same questions to all of our expert investors, but we asked you those questions back when we spoke about a hundred episodes ago. So what we thought we would do is um, have a quick game and it's called Alec and Bryce's ETF competition. <laughs> okay. What we want to do is pitch you the name of an ETF and what the ETF does. And then if you can give us a rating out of 10 based on creativity and likelihood of success, that would be much appreciated. We've got three each if that's okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. And first of all, congratulations on such a smutty title for your game. I couldn't have come up with that myself. Uh, and, and second of all, you should know that we actually run a student grant for any of any listeners out there. We run a student grant where we give $5,000 to a university student in Australia for precisely this. They come up with an ETF idea. And at the end, I'll tell you which one we chose last year. Um, so we've actually been receiving quite literally relatively detailed pitches like this. So I look forward to hearing yours. Oh, wow. I look forward to receiving my $5,000. <laughs> University students only. Well, I'm about to start an MBA, so does that count? <laughs> it does. It does. All right. Well, then, then if that's the case, I'll kick off. So th my first one is called Trump Tweets, and it's an ETF that tracks companies most impacted by Trump's tweets. Yeah. So what am I supposed to do? Give it a rating out of 10 or? On creativity and likelihood of success. <laughs> okay. So... A zero out of ten for creativity and a zero out of ten for likelihood. No, no, no. I'm just asking the question. Is that is that the oh, rule? Yes. So zero, oh, yes. Zero for no creativity. And I, I agree. It's a zero though. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I think creativity there is excellent. I think the creativity there is, you know, possibly an eight. It's extremely, you know, it's extremely creative and 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 very topical. So I'm going to give it an eight for creativity. Likelihood of success. When you mean success, do you mean demand or performance or both or what? Uh, we'll go demand. demand. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I think, where this might <laughs> fall down. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think people, there's a, apart from you know, obviously a, a, a good, good number of, of, of Americans, I think that his popularity around the world is dwindling and, and there's a very mixed reviews out there for him. So I think that people wanting to invest in something to do with him would come up with a lot of friction. And also, of course, we don't know how long he's going to be around for. So I'm going to have to give oh. that a two for like so a total of 10 points. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So my first one, um, we know that the MSCI All World Index covers about 85% of the investable universe. So my first pitch is an ETF that covers every single stock, 100% of the investable universe. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts. Well, I think creativity, creativity <laughs> isn't great, is it? I mean, uh, <laughs> creativity isn't so great. It's more just extension on a theme. So I'm going to have to give that a three for creativity. And unfortunately, on terms of likelihood of demand, I think very, very low because 
the truth of the matter is, for those of you that are mathematically minded, these indexes are done on a, on a, on a market cap weighted basis. So by the time you take the large ones, you're getting 90, 95% of, of all investable assets anyway. All right, we'll, we'll change it. This, we'll make this one equal cap weighted. <laughs> uh, okay. Impossible. Well, that's different. Again, the, no, you can't change. That, that, you that, can't change. <laughs> No, I have, to, I have to agree there. We have to stick to the original, oh, okay, the original okay. suggestion. And so I'll give it a three, as I mentioned, for creativity and demand that sort of a, unfortunately made a two. Oh, okay. So my second one is called Microcaps, and it's an ETF that follows um, stocks that have, a micro, uh, that have a market cap of sub 30 million. Well, apart from the fact that you couldn't do that, let's just focus on the hypothetical game we've got here because it wouldn't be possible to create an ETF because obviously that would mean that the ETF itself will start moving the market. But in the context of the game, creativity is middle of the road, I would say, okay. five out of 10. However, demand I think would be quite strong because you think that there's people out there who just, instead of picking these micro caps, want to hit the micro cap sector. Yeah. So I'd probably give this one, I'd probably give this one, I'm going to have to tie it. I'll give this one a five as well. So it can be a tie with the Trump, the Trump at the moment. Look, I'll take that. All right, Ren, what do you got? So my second one is a dying industries short ETF. And it finds industries that are in uh, structural decline and uh, goes heavily short them. Now we're talking. Wow. <laughs> now we're talking. This is a strong idea, a creative idea. Uh, there's actually products in the US, you should look them up. They're called Death of Retail ETF. So that's just a particular <laughs> wow. sector. So it actually exists, Death of Retail ETF. This is obviously traditional retail being eaten alive by by electronic or internet-based retail, so e-commerce. So I think creativity there is is decent. I'd probably give it a seven for creativity. And I actually see demand being high for this one. I think that particularly amongst your community, they would be familiar with the fact that, for example, I assume you'd have things like retail in there and, and other things that you think will die. So I'm going to give that a seven and a seven. I'll give it a total score of 14, this one. <laughs> Now, this one is my final one and also probably not possible at all, but it's uh, it's the ETF of ETFs or ETF of LICs, and it's an ETF that follows the most popular ETFs in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Look, I think <laughs> ETF follow the most. Look, I think it's quite a creative thing. So, in other words, you'd be buying the popular themes and sort of selling the, the less popular. So, it's sort of a momentum-driven yeah, yeah. sort of strategy, I think. It's got, it's got merit. It's got merit. It can absolutely be done. There's no reason Copyright. why it can't be done. It's definitely doable. <laughs> very, very, uh, yep, very, very good. Look, I would say that it is quite creative, your idea, and I'm going to have to give that a, a six for creativity. Okay. And demand is going to be six as well. Nice. All right, Ren, bring it home. So I'd love to pitch a uh, finance podcast ETF, but we're probably, you know, three to five years away from that being <laughs> a, a realistic possibility. Uh, but watch this space. So I'll, I'll finish up with a space exploration ETF. Ooh. Nice. So the, the ETF podcast, the, the, the sort of investment podcast ETF would have just equity mates in it, of course, the leader. The leader <laughs> there's no, there's no others. We, we would be the biggest holding for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, no doubt about it. Yeah. And by that point, you'll be, you know, all over the world. And yeah, exactly. So, but for your space exploration, hey, listen, once again, good creativity there. Interesting area. You know, I have to give that... I'll give that a seven nice. for creativity. And for demand, I think it would just possibly be a little bit less demand than your death of um, industry idea. And so I'm going to have to crown the death of the industry idea the winner and, um, and, and give that a, a this, give the space exploration product a six for, you know, a six for demand. Nice. So Ren, when Ren wins with the um, the space exploration on fourteen points, no, no, oh, sorry, the death death die death of an industry on fourteen points. Fun game. Uh, interesting to know, Elon, that you do have a, a scholarship for this. So that's something I wasn't aware of. So yeah, I guess if anyone's interested, how can they find out more about that side? 
Oh, it's just on the it's on the BetaShares uh, homepage. You can just uh, search for the student grant um, in the About Us section. So in the About Us section, you can go to the student grant. And, of course, it should be promoted to people's direct university. Right. So we had a, a really great Melbourne university, university of Melbourne student win last year. He, um, he, he won, and it was, uh, it was a, so that was really good. So, yeah. Nice. Can, can you tell us what the idea was? Yeah, of course I can. Sorry, yeah. So his idea was an ETF of exchanges. So buying exchanges themselves, which are often listed. So, so like the ASX yeah, and yeah. New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. So oh, I, I thought, yeah, that's cool. We thought that was excellent because, you know, there's not that many of them. It's quite hard to get. They're all over the world. They are growing as, like, stock markets grow. And they do have obviously the ETF factor to them as well, which is helping them to grow. And I thought we thought it was a stupendous idea um, and really unique. And so we awarded the grant to that student, which was excellent. Would it have beaten um, the decline of industry? <laughs> mm, you know, I think it would have been a quite a close call. I really like the decline oh, well, of that's industry. Right. We'll split the prize then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that brings us to the uh, end of our, our conversation, Elon. As always, it's um, so enjoyable to speak with you. You know, we're, we're very much enjoying the, the growth of um, beta shares. And again, thanks for the support that you guys give equity mates. As I said, we've, we met very early on in our journey. So we very much appreciate that. And I think uh, hopefully we've managed to answer as many of the questions as we can that have come in from the equity mates community. There were a lot that that came through. So uh, we tried to sort of tie them up as, as best we could. As always, I'm sure many more will come through. So we might touch base again at some point in the future just to see how things are tracking with beta shares. And I'm sure there'll be some exciting ETFs that have come to market between now and then. So uh, until we do chat again, thank you for joining us today and uh, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the repeat visits and really appreciate all the work you're doing, educating investors and uh, would be more than happy to to come on again and answer more questions. Thanks very much, guys. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.